Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer and get started. Father, thank you again for your love and faithfulness to us. We ask for your blessing for our time in your word, that you would use it to strengthen us, to build unity, to stir in us a greater love for you. We ask, Lord, for wisdom to understand this text and how to apply it and to see its warnings as valuable and timely, like we can go forward with greater zeal and greater love for one another. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 3. We have been exploring as a matter of uh, re-energizing our church body, uh, refocusing on the task at hand, and even being warned against certain characteristics, certain things that can creep in the church and severely compromise us. One of the most challenging of the letters, the letters that Jesus himself writes to these churches in the book of Revelation, is the uh, final letter, the letter to the church at Laodicea. This is Revelation chapter 3. If you're not there already, I'll start at verse 14. I invite you to follow along as I read. Revelation 3, verse 14 through 22. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know, but you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself. And that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. <clears throat> Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And certainly I would hope and pray that we have those ears today and that we listen carefully to what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying, not only to the church at Laodicea, but he says churches, so we, fought, we, would, we would follow that and say uh, all the other churches were also privy to the contents of this letter, and so it applies for us today. They serve as both encouragements and warnings, and we do well to heed those warnings and instructions. So just to try to jump right into it without too much recap. We got about halfway through. There's a lot going on in this letter, and there's a lot of uh, a lot of layers to peel back so we can properly understand it. And in the big picture, of course, is I do not want Emmaus Road Reformed Baptist Church to be a lukewarm church. I want us to be both hot and cold. I want us to have zeal. I want us to refresh others, not only within our midst, but within our community as well, as we bring the healing word of the gospel to our city and beyond. So breaking this down really quickly, of course, we have the congregation, the church of Laodicea. We have what we have called the Christ, as Christ has introduced himself just very quickly. In verse 14, he's the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. And he is speaking clearly, powerfully, and authoritatively to this church, a church that is in desperate need of correction and yet does not know it. A church that does not know its need because it is blind as Christ will later say. And yet, because he is the amen and the true and faithful witness, the church is to listen, to see what he says as fully trustworthy, even though what he says will sting, no doubt. He is the beginning of the creation of God, meaning that the church, both local and universal, depends upon Christ for her very existence. Without Christ, there is no church. Without Christ, there is no body. Without Christ, as the author of the new creation, there are no new creations in Him. We best listen to what He says. Then, of course, there is what we call the condemnation. He says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were 
cold or hot, and we've talked about that rather than this being indications of, of an apostate church, we find that it is a useless church because there are uses for both cold and hot water. If you want the details, I will refer you to uh, last Lord's Day's sermon. But he says, this lukewarmness, this lukewarm attitude, due to that I will spit you, I will vomit you out of my mouth. A violent retching, Christ tells them. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And he says, you do not know, right? I know, but you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Very startling diagnosis for a church that really thinks it's in the clear. A church that has become self-sufficient. A church that it believes, that believes it has everything and so does not need Christ. And if we pause here for a minute, we find that Laodicea is the one church out of the seven that has the harshest criticism, the harshest condemnation leveled against it. This is the one church that Christ has nothing good to say about even though they think they are doing everything right. Though they boast, they have no reason to boast. This is a church that may say, like many churches today, friends, that we are blessed. Right? Look how much God has blessed us and yet is unaware of its true spiritual condition. Is unaware of the, the danger that it's in. And so, we can take that time to be aware of this danger. To put up guards to protect ourselves, to be vigilant against this temptation of lukewarmness. It's really interesting that this church is, even though it's in the worst shape, it is probably among the, the most self-righteous of these churches. And you realize that in the Gospels, who does Jesus reserve His harshest criticism for? The Pharisees, the scribes, the elders. Those who think they know things. The religious elite, the self-righteous, the learned, the teachers of the law, and both John the Baptist and Jesus decry them as brood of vipers, generations of snakes. It's hard to take. We struggle with that kind of criticism. We typically resist it. A church in this situation has a problem with humility. And so when this kind of correction comes its way, it's very hard to respond with a soft heart, with a mind that desires to process what is being told to it. And yet we are called to have ears to hear and to listen. And it's really interesting. It seems like when the opposite happens, you know, there, there are, I was thinking about this this morning. Sometimes we like to self-diagnose. We like to kind of come in false humility and tell people how poor and wretched and blind and naked we are, how helpless, how tough life has been. And, and often, sometimes we do that, and what we're really looking for is a compliment. You ever been there? Like, you start feeling like you're, you're just, it, it's hard. The faith is hard. You're, you, you know, you're, you become, you become complacent. You become apathetic. You question maybe even whether or not you're truly in the Lord. There's no zeal. Where has it gone? And you come and you tell a brother in Christ, they're like, hey man, I'm poor, I'm wretched, I'm miserable, I'm blind and naked. And you're looking to, you're looking for some kind of comfort, right? Say, oh no, bro, it's not really that bad. Let me tell you, like, you, you've been doing great. You're prosperous. You're blessed. The last thing you expect him to say is like, yeah, you are. I'm glad you're finally recognizing this about yourself. And yet sometimes that's necessary. This is the exact thing we need to hear to kind of defibrillate our hearts a little bit, to shock us back into life. Sometimes it gets that bad. And here is a church that is pretty much at, the, at, at one of the worst places a church can be. A church that is boasting and completely blind to its true spiritual condition. And the one that the Lord has the harshest criticism for. Right? Laodicea was a prosperous town. And when we talked about last, uh, last Lord's Day from a historical point of view, is that there was a great earthquake in that area, and Laodicea was so prosperous, they were so rich, but they were able to deny uh, money and provisions from the Roman emperor. 
from the government. And while we today would say, oh, that's a good thing, we want to be self-sufficient, when it comes to the church and its utter reliance on Jesus Christ and all the grace He gives, what happens here is if the Laodicean church is treating Christ like Romans were treating the Roman emperor. We don't need you. We have enough. We are prosperous. And so their problem is one of self-sufficiency. A self-sufficiency which leads to apathy, hence the diagnosis of lukewarmness. You say, where does this come from? How do we become self-sufficient? I believe it's the outcome of what we could call a cultural seduction or reliance on material possessions. Here's the thing with the Laodicean church that I think we can say is very clear and very true. They have become so much like the surrounding culture but they are virtually indistinguishable from it. You can't tell the difference. And of course, the church should be a local body that stands out. What's interesting to point out about the church of Laodicea that I think we kind of passed over last week is that here is a church that is not being persecuted. Now, I'm not saying we should run headlong into persecution. We should not romanticize it. Because we find that if we are truly impacting the surrounding culture, they will show favor toward the church. But the fact is, is when the church comes in and proclaims the kingdom of God faithfully, there will be opposition, especially at first. Because we are proclaiming not only that they need to be rescued from the domain of darkness and reconciled to a holy God, we are also proclaiming that there is a king. There is a king who is advancing his kingdom. His name is Jesus Christ. And he is putting all of his enemies under his feet. Therefore, repent, turn from your sin, believe in him, trust him as Savior, put your hope only in him, and then of course, out of that, abide in him, obey his commandments, live in him, live for his glory. And all who do not obey the gospel of Christ will be swept away in judgment. And so we go forth as his ambassadors proclaiming this, and of course, that is going to get some societal and cultural blowback. There's going to be resistance. As we understand in the long run, resistance is futile. All will bow the knee at some point. And yet here's a church that has become so at ease, so self-sufficient, so apathetic, I think we could conclude that they are not even making a difference in society. They are not, they are not being or seeking the welfare of the city. They are not They are not making disciples. They are indistinguishable from the city, but they are called to bless. And this is what makes Christ sick. So going down, we had that condemnation. And then, of course, we have the council. It says, all these things that you thought made you rich and self-sufficient, I am telling you, Jesus says, to come by the real thing. Gold refined in the fire, white garments... An eye ointment so you may see. So you may be aware of your own misery. So you may see yourself as I see you. See you in truth. That's the counsel. All the things you thought made you rich are the things that are making you wretched. Come buy the real thing from me and it's free. It is all of grace. And that's the call of Jesus Christ to His church. This self-sufficient, useless, apathetic church. Of course, we want to be sufficient in Christ. We want to be useful. We don't want to be apathetic. We want a church that is full of people who love the Lord, who love His Word, and who love one another. That's the greatest enemy of love, friends, is apathy. Just this dispassionate, careless attitude toward all the things that pertain to God and His kingdom. Sometimes the church just needs to be jolted awake from that. And our time may come. It may be soon. It may be far away. But It may come where we are in the crosshairs of judgment. But then, we do have hope. We have comfort. After the council, we have the comfort. And that's where we will take off today. Look at verse 19. He says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Boy, up to now, we would think that this church is in a hopeless situation. But sometimes I think we forget the grace of God. This is His church. I think that's why I maintain the view that they are a true church, though they may experience some spiritual apostasy. Consider what the text says about even the church at Laodicea. One, they are a church. 
They are the ecclesia of Laodicea. We understand that even Christians can experience times of stagnancy and apathy. We can still be fleshly. We can forget our former purification, as 2 Peter says. We can forget who we are in Christ. And that forgetfulness can lead to this apathy, this self-sufficiency. We understand also that Christ walks among them. He walks among His seven churches. He has a claim on these people. They belong to Him. He identifies with them. Fourthly, He's about to spew them out of His mouth, so I think it stands to reason that they are part of His body. And He's going to vomit them out. And He's calling out to them to be zealous and repent. And He tells them right here, and I think perhaps this is the biggest case, He tells them He loves them. Those who I love, I reprove and discipline. He's not just going to let His own sheep wander away from Him permanently. If we are true sons, if we really belong to Christ, we will experience His loving discipline, His reproof. His Word will come to bear, though it be a sharp sword. It will cut through the calloused heart and do its work in the life of the believer. And so I think we can rest assured that this is indeed a church, a church that belongs to Him. And that is why we have this comfort. To those I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, He says, be zealous and repent. So we see this lack of zeal. It's one of their problems. That's why we say they're useless and apathetic. He's calling them to be zealous. Talk about zeal quite a bit, right? We want to be passionate about the Gospel. Right? We want it, we want to be Christians who have fervency, who are excited about the Word, who are excited about our Savior. That our heart is not only alive, but it responds quickly. It's typically how we understand zeal, right? We are responsive to the Word. We are excited about it. And not only that, this is a fervor, this is an excitement that leads to action, that leads to kingdom living. Interestingly enough, this word zeal, zealous, is tied to a word that it rhymes with. It's jealous, right? Typically, we think of jealousy as a, as, as a, in, in, in a negative, in a negative light. When you're jealous of some, of someone, you want something that they have that does not belong to you. It's often tied with greed and its worst expression with envy. You want to deprive someone of a good thing that they have. But think about this. I think jealousy plays an appropriate role in the life of the Christian as well. Even God says, my name is jealous. He is a jealous God, right? He is jealous for our love and our faith and our affection and our allegiance. In a similar sense, we should also be jealous for the name of God. That is a characteristic befitting followers of Christ. We are jealous for His name. We demand, not only desire, but we demand that His name be praised and glorified. We demand that His word be cherished and proclaimed. We are jealous for His glory as He is. And so we have this word here again from Romans 13.13. Interestingly enough, Paul says this, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife, in jealousy. Same word is used there for jealousy as it is for the command here to be zealous. So the word isn't always negative. But there is a sense in which Zealous points to this passionate jealousy for the honor and fame of Jesus Christ. And we don't often attach zeal to repentance, but here Jesus is very clear. Don't be apathetic. Be zealous. Reignite your zeal and what's the first thing? Repent. Repent. Not just to merely change your mind about who Christ is, but turn away from your sin. Repent of your apathy. Yes, change your mindset completely and totally. Turn away from this self-sufficient attitude toward Christ and see Him rather as all-sufficient. Be zealous and repent because time is running out. Christ will only tolerate spiritual stagnation for so long. And yet with that comes this restating of His love You are mine, 
And if you are mine, I love you and I reprove and discipline you, though it may be hard for a time. Hebrews 12 says as much. In verse 11 through 13, we read this. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. Right? Who, who of us likes discipline? It's painful. And sometimes we think it's way harsh and unnecessary. And yet when we think of it in that way, we forget that that is, that is a peculiar, app, an important application of Christ's love for us. Otherwise, as Hebrews says, we are illegitimate children. We do not truly belong to Him if there is no discipline. So the fact that we are disciplined, whether individual or corporate or corporately, tells us that Christ has set His love upon us to bring that correction. And that is something that we rejoice over. So he says, for the moment, it seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So you see, at first we may say, what is the point of this discipline? All we know is that it's painful. All we know is that it is an affliction. And which who of us in here likes pain? We don't like pain. We're adverse to it. And so even when even when the Lord has to, has to uh, lay the proverbial smackdown on us to draw our attention toward Him, we don't understand right away. But as time goes on and we, our hearts are open to receiving His Word, to receiving His reproof and correction, we find that there was a purpose for it all along. The peaceful fruit of righteousness. And so we can look back and say, praise the Lord. His correction brought, had a purpose to it. And now I am bearing fruit. So don't despise His discipline. And so Hebrews 12 goes on, Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak. So in light of this discipline, here's our instruction. Strengthen the hands, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. And make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. I would say that this is another way in which we can understand a reawakening of spiritual zeal is found here. Strengthening the hands that are weak, making straight paths, so that the the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint. Be zealous and repent, the Lord Jesus says. Knowing that it is His love that is being expressed and not His wrath. And that's that's the comfort we have, is knowing that even in discipline, the Lord is setting His His efficacious saving love on us that sanctifies, that purifies, and that draws our attention back to Him. And think about this, guys. This is a church in one of the worst states that it can possibly be. And yet, it is not beyond the saving arm and the saving grace of Christ. So be zealous and repent. That's the commanded response. And so here's the challenge. Here's the challenge. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Now this, this is, uh, it's part of the lyrics we used to sing in, in Sunday school and children's church when I was a kid. And it's, and, and what it's, what it was meant to teach back then was that Christ is outside the door of my heart and he's knocking and I am commanded to behold. And, and open the door, and he'll come in, and I'll ask him into my heart, and I will be saved. That's typically the way it's presented. But this is not primarily an evangelical text. And often when the gospel is, is preached, this is a text that is brought in to, to issue this call to faith in Christ. Hey, Jesus is outside of, of the door of your heart, and he's knocking, and you need to just let him in. Now, there is a there is a, a a work of art as a painting, and it depicts Jesus as standing outside of this door, right? And he's I think he, I think he's got some you know he's lit up a little bit, um, and he's he's shows him knocking on the door, and and note the profound part of this piece of art. There is no knob outside of the door, right? There's no outside knob to open the door. So what does that mean to us? That means of our own free will. Right? It's up to us and the choice that we make. We need to open the only knob that's available. That's the one from the inside because Jesus is powerless to do it. We have to open that door and invite him in. That's typically the understanding or the teaching that is expressed in that particular work of art. 
But note in here, there is no mention of the sinner's heart. Even though there's a mention of someone hearing his voice, there's still nothing here which speaks of asking Jesus into one's heart for salvation. We don't want to disregard the immediate context. Because I would say that what actually this text is referring to is much more powerful, much more profound and applicable for the church today. There is so much more here than Jesus knocking on the door of the sinner's heart. It's a great quote from a man named Jeremiah Johnson says, put simply, Christ isn't pleading on every sinner's spiritual doorstep. Jesus doesn't need to beg or badger anyone into the kingdom of heaven. Salvation isn't merely a matter of the Lord getting a foot inside the door of your heart. Listen to this. It's a work of total transformation, Ezekiel 36.26. And most important of all, most important of all, salvation is not triggered by an act of the sinner's will. It is God's intervening work that rescues us from the just penalty of our sin. Ephesians 2, 4 through 9, end quote. Now, another view accompanying this individualistic salvation view is the one that Jesus is standing here, and he's standing at the door of the church of Laodicea, hoping to be granted admittance. Once again, it doesn't take into account the surrounding context. Also, Bear in mind that during this time, most churches were house churches. I think we imagine like a a church building that Jesus metaphorically is outside of the church building that was built by uh, the most recent church building campaign, and he's asking admittance. You guys have put me outside of the church, and I'm knocking and asking you to let me in. But I would say even from the get-go, it's very hard to imagine Christ as locked out of his own church. Remember, a fundamental truth of Christianity. This is Jesus' church. You can't lock Jesus out of his own church. No, he still has a claim on you. He has a claim on the church of Laodicea. Strange to think of Christ who says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Christ over the church that he gave his very life for. Somehow, is at the whim of a church who just won't let him. Listen to what the Scripture says regarding Christ is, as Revelation 1 describes, the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is in charge not only of His church, He is in charge over all of the cosmos. Are we to sit here and think that He's not going to wield any of this authority over puny, lukewarm, local church in Laodicea? You best not think that. He goes on to tell them in verse 21 that He has a throne and that He has sat down with His Father on His throne. This is the throne of Almighty God. And with this authority, we should automatically think that even over this church, He has authority over it. And He is about to do something that maybe we are previously unawares. That maybe even the church of Laodicea is unaware. Listen to John 17. When he gives this great high priestly prayer to the Father, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may also glorify you as you have given Him power over all flesh, that He should give eternal life to as many as you have given to Him. Jesus, the One with power over all flesh, standing at the door of a church, saying, please let me in. Does he have power over all flesh or is he a beggar standing at the door waiting for someone to let him in? And here's where we come to understanding, I think, what actually is going on with this text. Jesus is not knocking on the door of the sinner's heart. He's not even knocking on the door of the church. Knocking at the door was considered what we call a form of importunity or urgency in first century Middle Eastern cultures, and it often still is. Importunity, friends, refers to a plea or even a demand. You're trying to get someone's attention right away. See, in the first century, in this area of the world, typically if you wanted to get your neighbor's attention, instead of knocking at the door, you know what you did? You stood outside and you yelled at them. You called their name. Hey, Bill. Hey, Rick. Hey, Steve. Hey, Ken. I'm here. Open up. That's typically how it was done. 
Casual, you come over to your ha- their house, you need something, you call their name. But if you knock on their door, speaks of warning or sudden intrusion, like a midnight FBI raid. There's an example of this even from Song of Solomon. Chapter 5, verse 2, I was asleep, but my heart was awake. A voice! My beloved was knocking! Urgency, right? Suddenness, intrusion. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my perfect one. See, now it is the time for love and fellowship within the blessed confines of marriage. For my head is drenched with dew, my locks with the damp of the night, right? Open up right now, it's raining out here. Suddenness, urgency, importunity. Don't keep this door closed, right? As opposed to calling out. And so this is a very important passage for understanding the urgency, importunity. Behold, I stand at the door. When someone says behold, that is a word that grabs your attention. Behold, look here, see this. Now, why is this significant? Why is this urgency significant to Laodicea? Well, if you give a brief glance to the other churches and what's going on there, Christ never says, I am at the door. Listen to what he says to Ephesus. And we see some of this in, in Luke 12. Scripture reading this morning, verse 36, where he says, I am coming, I will come to you like a thief. I will come to you like a thief when you do not expect it. Okay. Now, in Revelation 2.5, he says this, Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. What was, what was the Ephesus church problem? They had lost their first love or the love they had at first. And Jesus is warning them, this is not a small thing. Repent or I am coming to you and I will remove your lampstand. In 2.16, the church at Pergamum, Therefore, repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Once There's a warning, and there is urgency to this. Don't miss the urgency. If you do not repent, I will come quickly. 2.25, Thyatira. Right, he says, nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. Right? I think this would be a, a coming in judgment for those in the church who, who are opposed to Christ. In 3.3, Sardis. The so-called dead church, he says, therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. So similar wording to Luke 12, 36, and also similar to the judgment language used in Matthew 24. You do not, the day of the hour, nobody knows. When he comes, I will come quickly. So here's the difference. Here's the primary difference. With all of these, right, there's, I'm coming quickly or I'm going to come. But with Laodicea, I'm here. I'm here already, and I'm knocking at your door. And I think the effect here is, open your door before I kick it down. Open your door before I kick it down in judgment. It's clear, because in the previous, it's, in the previous churches, it's a warning for judgment. I will come quickly. But if he is already here, he is at the door. There is even greater urgency in that warning than it was in the other churches. See, this isn't Jesus softly knocking, waiting for someone to answer. It's not a... It's a... Man, we hate it when people do that to any door. Our front door, our bathroom door, any kind of door. We don't like being taken by surprise like that. We don't like the noise. We don't like the urgency. We don't like these the, the disruption of the peace. And yet for a church like Laodicea, it's exactly what needs to happen because that's a church that thinks it's at rest, thinks it's at peace, thinks that everything is going the way it should go. And yet here it is, the Lord of heaven and earth is knocking at their metaphorical door, ready to bust it down if they don't respond to him first. And what a dangerous place for a church to be. The most dangerous place for a church to be is a church that is self-sufficient, apathetic, and lukewarm. And you know why they are in this place? Because I think they have that exact view of Jesus. This humble, weak, lowly, helpless Savior waiting for us to answer. Helpless, passive, 
Here's the problem. The church of Laodicea has made Christ into a Laodicean. They believe they serve a lukewarm Jesus. I think that's what we do to Him often. A passive Savior who's never going to come in and reign in, our parade, reign in on our parade. Who's never going to cause a disturbance. Who's never going to cut us to pieces. And we think so little of Him. We think so little of His power and of His might and of the urgency of His Word. So behold, I stand at the door and knock. This is not... I hope this verse gets rid of any, any picture in our minds that we have of Jesus being this gentleman who's just waiting for us to respond. Who's waiting for His turn. Look, a person who has all the power, has power over all flesh, who has all power in heaven and on earth, does not need to wait His turn. And in the case of a church like this, He is doing anything but that. He is here at the door. Even in James chapter 5, great parallel passage because James is talking to the rich, the rich of the flock whose riches have become moth-eaten. And if you look down in this chapter, he says, do not complain, brethren, against one another so that you yourselves are not judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door, which means judgment is about to come. And so Jesus is expressing the very same thing in Revelation chapter 3 to the church of Laodicea. Jesus expresses the same thing in Matthew 24, right? When he's warning about the judgment that is to come in AD 70 upon apostate Jerusalem and the apostate old religious world order. And he says, when you see these signs, know that I am right at the door. That judgment is just a door knock away. Don't be caught up in it. Be zealous and repent of your apathy and find all sufficiency in me and in me alone. That's what he's telling his church. And that is a gracious message. It's hard to hear when you're that wretched. And yet, what do we read from Paul? Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. We have to see the grace in this reproof. And so he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Ready to, ready to knock it down. But he says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. This dining, a sign of dwelling together, a, a sign of restoration of fellowship. I think this is directly parallel to the words that Jesus told to his disciples. Listen to this from John 14. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. So I think just based on the description in that verse, this is not dealing with things uh, pertaining so much to a moment of salvation, right? Opening up the door of your heart to Jesus. This is a restoration and enjoyment of the blessings of fellowship. It's not a call to salvation. Rather, it's a return to the blessings of salvation. And the Lord desires a restoration of that joyful fellowship with His people. So if anyone is there, if one person is there, I think He's saying on the, almost, almost in reg with the same regard to Abraham and Sodom and Gomorrah, right? He says, Lord, if you find ten people, will you spare it? And in this case, if one person opens the door, this church will be spared. He said, this, there will be fellowship between myself and this person who opens the door. I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Just like he says in John 14, we will make our home with him. That is the reality for the person who loves the Lord Jesus and keeps his word. See, the relationship we have with God is consistently in Scripture de described as family. In John 1.12, those who have received believers or have received Christ, the believers are sons of God. In Hebrews 2 and Romans 8, Christ is our elder brother. God is our Father. And the inner man is the home of God when we believe. And so that's the warning. 
A call, an urgent call to restore fellowship, not a call to salvation. And so he says, be zealous and repent. Open the door so fellowship can be resumed and enjoyed. Fellowship rather than judgment. Dennis Johnson concludes, the Laodiceans cannot avert his arrival by ignoring his knock, but their response to his warning will determine whether his entrance brings them the joy of the banquet or the exposure of their shame. But as we recognize in a text like this, friends, time is short. Time is short. Do not despise the patience of the Lord. Respond, be zealous, and repent. Repent of our apathy and renew our love and zeal for Christ. And here's the final portion of this challenge. It comes in the form of a promise. He says in verse 21, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on His throne. So you don't have a ton of time, but let's get through these last couple of verses. He who overcomes. Right. So there's a challenge here issued. He who overcomes. I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. I think that's pretty obvious. This speaks of enjoying this kingdom reign, being co-enthroned with the Lord Jesus Christ. That we are able to sit down with him and enjoy that kingdom reign with him as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on His throne. So we see that Christ here, has He has not left this church flying blind. We have an example to follow. Overcome as I overcome. We think of the things that Jesus faced in His life and His ministry. Temptations of many kinds, right? Tempted in all manners as we have been, yet without sin. Find that Christ overcame not only temptation, but He came. He overcame the devil. He overcame death. And so by following His example, by faith in Him and Him alone, we also overcome those things. We overcome in light of His victory over those things. That's why Paul tells the Romans, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We walk in triumphant procession with Christ in light of His victory over sin and death and hell and the grave and all the things that are attached to those things. But listen to this. A church that finds itself in a situation like this, it's lukewarm, Christ is about to bust down the door and judge them. What hope do we have? Because certainly this is not coming from us. What grace do we have? Well, listen to what 1 John 5 says. For who whatever is born of God overcomes the world. So this overcoming is a reality for those who belong to Him. But listen to this. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Simple. It's not our good deeds. You know, it's not even our zeal. It's our faith. It's trusting in Christ alone. It's relying on Him. His strength. His power. His wisdom. His salvation. Right? This is a, this is the very thing that the Laodiceans were dealing with. Self-sufficiency. The thing that overcomes this world is our faith. A faith that rests in Christ's sufficiency alone. Not in anything that we're able to do. And then it says this, Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And let me tell you, if we believe that He is the Son of God, we believe Him as He is presented here in these opening chapters of Revelation. The risen Son of God. The ruler of the kings of the earth. The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Holding all things together by the word of His power. Just returning to that faith in Him. That is the faith that overcomes the world. We overcome the world because in John 16.33, He says, take heart, right? In this world you will have tribulation. We all know it. We all endure it to this day. But He says, take heart, I have overcome the world. And when it, if we overcome, the promise is to co, to be co-enthroned and to co-reign with Christ. It's a promise from Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies. And indeed, that is the victory that Christ has over all creation. In Revelation 5.10, we read about our destiny. You have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our Lord. And they will reign upon the earth. See, not just heaven where we're all up there on a cloud strumming our harps. 
No, on, this is an earthly reality to reign with Christ. Because He reigns on the earth as well, even now. Listen to Revelation 22.3. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His bondservants will serve Him. So there is this urgency to Laodicea. And I think even to the churches in general in that period, remember, judgment was going to come. Judgment was approaching. And as Peter says, judgment must begin with the household of God. And if it seems harsh on them, how much greater will it be on those who do not believe the gospel? So there's a warning here. That when this judgment comes, or when it came, that the churches should not be swept away with it. Listen to 2 Peter 2, 10-11. We went over this several months ago. He writes this. Remember, the approaching judgment on Jerusalem. Just a, just a hair away. And he says, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. So he's saying them, if you persevere past this time of testing, you continue to make your calling and choosing certain. You continue to practice godliness and not stumble into unbelief. When that time of judgment comes and goes, and Christ's kingdom is made manifest in His judgment upon His enemies, entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. You will experience the full joy of that kingdom once it is made manifest in judgment. So even back then, 2,000 years ago, there was an anticipation of this kingdom reality. So it's not something that's merely or strictly future. It's past, present, and future. And we are a part of that. And we enjoy all the blessings of it as we persevere through those times of testing and times of judgment. But friends, if we are ever in a place like this, and the Lord is there at our door knocking, you know, pity the one who continues to sleep. Pity the one who does not get up and answer the door. Because if the door is answered, we open it up to an amazing abundance of God's grace in Christ. But keep that door closed and do not listen. We will surely be disciplined. We will surely be judged. And perhaps no longer a church, worst case situation. So let us do more than simply preserve what we have. Let's be zealous for the things of God. Be zealous. Be jealous for the glory of Jesus Christ and continue to persevere in proclaiming the gospel and advancing his kingdom. I mean, we don't have time to unpack this, you know, so much, but consider the closing of this challenge, the conclusion in verse 22. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, right? Just following this call to overcome. Just as Christ overcame, so in Him and by His power we overcome. And if you have an ear, do we all have ears in here? We all have an ear. Listen to what He is saying. And sometimes we close our spiritual ears off to this kind of thing, off to the severity of these warnings because all we think about is Christ's Love and His grace and His goodness, but we hardly ever draw attention to His righteousness and justice and His zeal for His own name and glory. So far be it from Emmaus Road Reformed Baptist Church to shut our ear to warnings like this. Even if we are not a lukewarm church, let's strive to never be close to being one. Let us never be apathetic concerning the power of the Gospel in the name of Jesus Christ. Let us hold fast to what we have heard. Let us hold fast to our confession. Let us be both cold, that is refreshing, to those who are among us. And let us be warm. Let us be hot with zeal to bring healing to those God brings to us. But let us never be lukewarm. Let us never make Christ sick. And I certainly pray that we have an ear for that, right? Let him, if we have an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to these seven churches, but also every church in every age. Let us repent from our apathy and open up our spiritual ears to hear Christ's words to us, to repent, to be zealous, and to come to him and receive everything he has for us 
freely and in abundance. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again uh, for your word. It is a tough message to hear. Lord, you, you are at the door of Laodicea and you are knocking, ready to judge, but equally ready to restore fellowship, equally ready to dispense your abundant and amazing grace to the one who hears you. Lord, I do pray that our ears would be open, that we would have ears to hear, we would have eyes to see, a heart that understands, a mind that comprehends, comprehends the wonder of your grace and your gospel and your and the purposes of advancing your kingdom reign over every tongue and tribe and nation. Lord, how can we be careless about something like that? And if we are truly zealous, Lord, may we continue in that way, trusting in you alone, having a faith that overcomes this world, overcoming in a way that follows in your son's footsteps, that he overcame every principality and power and rule and dominion and has claim over the entire universe even now. What an example to follow and what a king we serve. Lord, knowing that he owns everything, how can we, how can we ever lack anything? The Lord is our shepherd, we shall not want. How can we then bring offense and reproach to his name by seeking any good thing elsewhere? And then in the very same breath, claiming that it is because of the things we have done that we are rich and self-sufficient and satisfied. Lord, may we even repent from the, the action or the temptation to claim that, oh, you have given us all of these things. So why should we, why should we bother being zealous? Lord, help us to search our heart in light of this text. We know there was a lot of material to go through. We know that there is a lot to be said, a lot to, to think through and ponder, but give us the mind of Christ as we do so and help us take every thought captive in obedience to Him. Lord, help us to not be lukewarm. Help us to receive Your discipline, though it may be difficult. Give us humble hearts. Break us of any callousness or any carelessness, Lord. We want to be useful in the hands of the Master. We do pray this, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.